I'm not preaching about Star Wars again, I promise. Um, but that music still makes me so happy every time. Um, good morning. We're so glad to have you with us this morning at FSN. Um, we're just so happy to worship together this morning and glad that you have chosen to join us. Um, if you are a guest, or if maybe I don't know you personally, my name is Pastor Megan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at FSN. Um, my wheelhouse kind of is children's ministry. Um, so a lot of the times I'll be at the check-in desk or in the kids' wing. Um, and so it's kind of um, a little out of my routine to be in here on a Sunday morning, but I'm enjoying it. It's always a joy to get to come and share God's Word. Um, so, like I said, I'm Pastor Megan. Pastor Tyler, he's usually the one up here um, doing the announcements. He is my husband. Um, and, you know, usually on a Wednesday night, um, I tend to have these teenagers that come down the stairs every week and tell me, guess what Pastor Tyler told us about you this week? Because he thinks it's, like, really funny, I think, to um, tell stories about me when I'm not um, in to hear. And so today I orchestrated um, so that he would be in children's church today. So before we get started, I would just like to read you a list of some embarrassing things about Pastor Tyler. No, really, we wouldn't have time, but um, he does. He likes to like tell stories that he thinks I won't find out about. But um, no, he is with the kids today and I really appreciate that. Um, But this week is our last um, week of the series at the movies. This is kind of becoming a tradition for us. Um, It's really fun for us, um, each of the pastoral staff, to take a week and um, take a movie and get to preach about it. And so it's kind of a fun one for us and we really enjoy it. Um, But before we get started, let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just love you so much. And God, we just pray um, for your spirit to come upon us, Lord, and just to have a mighty move of your presence in this service. God, we just um, ask that um, your word would guide us and lead us, and God, that your will would be made clear and known to us today. God, I pray that you would open our ears so that we may hear from you. Um, God, we pray that what we hear today um, would transform our lives, and that we would um, leave today um, living even more um, for your name than we were before. And so, God, we just thank you for all you've done and all you continue to do. Um, We love you so much. Amen. So, um, this week, I'm not preaching about Star Wars again. It was actually tempting. I mean, there's enough movies. I could do that for years and, like, not run out of material. But instead, I'm going to preach about um, one, another one of my favorite movies. I loved Star Wars so much because I grew up watching it with my dad. Um, that's kind of what made it special to me. Um, this is another movie I grew up watching with um, my parents. And so before I started writing the sermon, I was like, I need to re-watch it. So um, the movie we're talking about today is The Princess Bride. So I sat down, and The Princess Bride is one of those movies that, like, when you're flipping through the channels for me, everyone has those movies that they always will stop on. Like, when it's on, you're just going to watch it. And um, that's one. this is one of those movies for me. But it had been a while since I had watched it like start to end. And so I sat down and I watched it and um, I realized a couple things. First of all, I realized that there were a lot of things in there that I did not understand when I was a kid. And then I rewatched it and I was like, oh, I get that now. But, um, and then I realized that this movie, man, the dialogue is so 
like good. It's such good dialogue, such good witty humor. And I almost had forgotten even how good it was until I sat down and rewatched it. So if you haven't watched it, it's, I recommend it. So how the movie came about. Um, so The Princess Bride, it is a movie, but first it was a book. And it was a book written by a man named William Goldman. Now how it came to be is William Goldman was about to write a book and he had two granddaughters. And so he asked his granddaughters, hey, what do you want me to write a story about? And one granddaughter said, well, I want a story about a princess. And one granddaughter said, well, I want a story about a bride. And so the princess bride came to be. And so it is a book that has been adapted into um, a movie. Sometimes that doesn't go so well. Um, But the guy who wrote the book also played such a large role in the movies. I really feel like it's a good um, book-to-screen adaptation. Um, So the movie, if you haven't seen it, starts out with a young boy who is sick. And so his grandpa comes to read to him. And initially, this boy, he's unsure. You know, can grandpa really have a good story to tell, I think, is what he's thinking. But his grandpa convinces him that this story will be worth his time. Hey, I was just sick. Huh? I think I'll leave you two pals alone. I brought you a special present. What is it? Open it up. A book? That's right. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. It's got any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Oh, well, thank you very much. Very nice to you. Your vote of confidence is overwhelming. All right. The Prince's Bride. By S. Morgenstern, Chapter 1. And so the grandfather goes on to tell the story in the book. And... Although he starts out a little reluctant, the grandson really does start to get invested in the story. Now, all good stories need something. All good stories need good characters. And The Princess Bride definitely has good characters. So, two of your main characters are Wesley and Buttercup. They're kind of your main, like, romantic interest of the story. Wesley serves as a sort of type of hero character in the story. You also have um, some comedic relief, okay? So you have Vicini, who's the, like, shorter, bald guy. He says inconceivable all the time. And then you have um, Fezzik, which is the giant. Um, And so um, you have just an array of characters. And then every good story also needs some good villains. Princess Bride, I think, has some really great villains. One villain is Prince Humperdinck. Um, Through some circumstances, Buttercup ends up engaged to this Prince Humperdinck, and he is just one of those guys that is kind of, like, slimy. Like, he just gives you that, you know, that, like, 
creepy crawly feeling. Like if your daughter brought him home, um, you would be like, yeah, no, I don't think so. He just gives you that sort of vibe. And then um, we have another villain, and that villain is the six-fingered man. And so the six-fingered man to me is a really interesting villain because during like the first half of the movie, he's just a background character. In fact, you kind of think he's completely unimportant, and he's so in the background that you never really even remember his real name, right? His real name is Count Tyrone, but I had to look it up even after I watched the movie because at first he's just this kind of background guy, and then at one point in the movie they, like, point the camera so you can see he has, he has six fingers on one hand, and then you're like, ah, oh, this guy is so much more important than you realized. And so he's also one of the main villains in the movie. Now there's one character that I've left out. He's my personal favorite, and that is Inigo Montoya. Now, Inigo Montoya is a great character, okay? He's just a solid dude. Like, he's kind of that character I feel like that you want to know in real life, and you kind of want him to be your friend. And he's driven, and he's caring, and he's a good friend to those around him. He's an excellent swordsman. But perhaps the most defining characteristic of him is that he is driven by revenge. So you have this sequence in the movie where Inigo Montoya and Wesley are about to duel. They are about to uh, sword fight each other, um, but they're both very uh, gentlemanly about it. They're very polite. There's some really good dialogue there. Um, and so through, through their talking together, Inigo Montoya kind of opens up to Wesley and tells him a little bit about his past. I think that's why we all like his character a lot, because really he's the only character we get any sort of backstory from. He's the only character that has any sort of background, um, and so he starts to share his story with Wesley. And he tells Wesley the story of how his father was killed by the six-fingered man. You see, the six-fingered man came to Aniga Montoya's um, father and asked him to make a sword, the most perfect sword, beautiful, perfectly balanced. Um, and so he does. He makes the sword. It's gorgeous. But the six-fingered man comes back to take the sword, and he only wants to pay a tenth of the price. Now, Montoya's father says, no, I'm not going to sell it to you for a tenth of the price. So instead, the six-fingered man kills him. Now, Inigo was only 11 when this happened, um, and he dueled the man who killed his father, but he lost. And so now, when the movie takes place, it is 20 years later, 20 years later, and Inigo is still motivated by vengeance. In fact, it's like his purpose in life is to avenge his father and kill the six-fingered man. He says he only works for Vicini to pay the bills. He says there's not a lot of money in revenge. And so we have, arising from this storyline, one of the most popular lines in the entire movie, which is, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, right? So that is one of the most, even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably have heard that line. It's one of the most well-known lines in the movie, okay? Now, how did the grandfather describe the story? See, he said there'd be fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, 
true love, miracles. It turns out that the Bible also has a story with these very same characteristics, and it's even complete with a giant of its own. And so today, we're going to be looking at that story in the Bible. Now, this story takes place in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, when we're in FSN Kids, we do this thing. Anytime we're talking about a book of the Bible, okay, I'm not going to, if, if you've worked in FSN Kids, I'm not going to make you do the tiny voice. But um, in FSN Kids, um, whenever we say the book of the Bible, we put our hand up like this. Um, and that's for a couple reasons. First of all, it just gets them involved. But it's also, we want um, to remind ourselves that the stories that we hear are not made up. They come from somewhere. They come from the Word of God. They come from the Bible. And so, um, I'm gonna, we're going to pretend we're in FSN Kids, and I want everyone to put your hand up, and then I want everyone to say, First Samuel. Okay, and then why, the reason we do that also is just to teach that anytime you are looking for the book of the Bible, it's going to be at the top of the page, okay? So, today we are in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament, okay? Um, so, that means that everything we talk about today takes place before the time of Jesus Christ. However, as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ still influences the way we read the Old Testament. And so even though all of this will take place before Jesus, we believe that Jesus still impacts how we hear the story and how we apply it to our lives. Now, the story today um, takes place at the beginning of the era of the kings. So we're coming in after the time of the judges, but before the time of the prophets. So in, for the Israelites, this is the time, the era of the kings. Now, we aren't going to read um, all of 1 Samuel today. We are going to kind of go through because it's like 30-some chapters long. And I don't know that you want me to stand up here and read 30 chapters. So we're just going to hit some of the high and low points today. Now, like we said, um, every good story needs some good characters, right? And this story definitely has good characters. And all of the characters in this story are presented as sort of a character study so that um, whoever reads or hears this story might find themselves somewhere in the story. So our very first character that we have is Samuel, okay? Okay book of 1 Samuel. So it makes sense that we have a Samuel. Now Samuel has a very interesting story of his own. We're not going to go into it today. Read 1 Samuel. It's got a lot in there. Um, but what you need to know for our purposes today is that Samuel grew up to be a prophet. So that means that Samuel um, was a spokesman to the people for God. So he spoke to the people on behalf of God, but he also spoke to God on behalf of the people. That was his role among Israel. He was a prophet. And so Samuel's story is sort of introductory into our story today. Now, so you see, eventually, the people go to Samuel and they ask for a king. Now, let it be very clear that it was not God's will, it was not God's plan. It was not his intention that the people of Israel have a king. In fact, that was what set Israel apart 
was that they didn't have a king. They weren't governed by a king. They were governed by God, right? And so that was God's intent for Israel. However, as people, we all do this. We tend to want what we see that other people have. And so the people of Israel saw all these other nations around them who were governed by a king, and they decided, hey, we would like a king. And so um, they go to Samuel and over and over, and they beg for a king, and finally God says, okay, we will get you a king. And so that leads us to our next character. Now our next character is kind of our main character per se, and that is the man Saul. Now Saul is the man that God appoints as king. And so a large portion of First Samuel kind of details the rise of King Saul. Now Saul, I'm going to ruin the end for you. He's a very tragic figure. He is a very he has a very tragic story because he starts out so full of promise. It says in the Bible that Saul um, was very impressive, that he was without equal, and that he was a head taller than the rest of the men. When you thought, hmm, who is the kind of person that I want to be my king? You would think of someone like Saul. And so Saul became king when he was 30 and would reign for 42 years. And so The Lord had Samuel anoint Saul as king and rose him up. But over time, this rise of King Saul will soon become a fall. In fact, it says in the Bible that the Lord became grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Not just like the Lord was disappointed or the Lord was upset or mad. It says the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul the king over Israel. And there's a reason for that. You see, Saul ended up having some pretty major flaws. Um, First of all, Saul was dishonest. He lacked integrity, and he couldn't acknowledge his own mistakes. However, probably the biggest character flaw that Saul had is that he was disobedient. Saul was disobedient to God. And it wasn't the kind of, like, um, outright disobedience, right? You know, when you ask your kid to go clean their room, and instead they go play video games. It wasn't that kind of disobedience. It was the disobedience um, of incompleteness. It was like when you ask your kid to clean the room, and instead they just shove everything under the bed and then come and tell you they did it. It was that kind of disobedience, the kind of disobedience where Saul would go 80%, but he wouldn't go 100%, but he would say that he did. That's the kind of disobedience that um, led Saul into his fall. And so the proud Saul is brought low, and it creates the need for a new king. Now, I do have a little disclaimer, because if you know who this is going to be, you know that Saul is not the only character in our story that has flaws, right? We all have flaws. All characters have flaws. The difference is, what do we do? How do we respond when our flaws bring out the worst in us? And so we're going to meet our final character, which is David. Okay? Now, David is the contrast to Saul. He's like the complete opposite. Remember, Saul was impressive. He was tall. He was without equal. 
And then you have David, okay? And David is young, he's small, he's looked over. When you think, who am I going to choose to be the king of Israel, you would not have thought David. And so he is presented as kind of like the total opposite of Saul. And so for Saul, this kind of puts him in a weird place. Imagine if you are Saul, imagine how he must have felt when David is appointed to be the next king. First of all, imagine how it must feel when you are leading a people and you are still alive and they already know who's going to be leading them next. That puts everybody in an awkward position. And so Saul starts to struggle, but things just kind of seem to get worse. You see, not only is David appointed as the next king, but Saul's own son, Jonathan, becomes David's best friend and dearest companion. Saul's own daughter falls in love with David. And Saul's own people, the people that he is still supposed to be king over, they are shouting the praises and singing the name of David in the streets. And so imagine how Saul must have felt. Now, when Inigo Montoya finally encounters the six-fingered man in the movie, um, the six-fingered man tells him, uh, there's kind of this line, I think it's funny, he says, you've got an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. It's going to get you in trouble someday. You see, the six-fingered man knew that Inigo Montoya's pain had become his passion. He knew that Inigo's pain had become his purpose, his lens through which he saw the world. See, the same thing happened to Saul. He acquired this overdeveloped sense of vengeance, and it would definitely get him into some trouble. See, for Saul, his pain had become his motivator, his purpose in life, the lens through which he would see the world. And this isn't limited to just characters we see in movies or we read in Bible stories. See, we all face pain. In the movie, there's this sequence where Wesley and Buttercup are talking, and Wesley tells Buttercup, he says, Life is pain, and anyone who tries to tell you different is selling you something. And you see, for us too, our pain, if we let it, can become our passion. So how does this happen? There's a chapter um, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 where things just kind of keep getting worse and worse for Saul. And maybe some of you will find yourself in there as well. You see, your pain may become your passion when you face loss. This is what happens for Inigo Montoya. He faces a loss. And his pain becomes his passion. It becomes the driving force in his life. Now, it may not be the loss of a person, even. For Saul, it was the loss of a kingship, the loss of the favor of his people, and the loss of God's blessing. It says that because of Saul's disobedience, the Spirit of God literally left him. And so he was facing a lot of loss. All of us face loss. And sometimes when we face loss, that pain can become our passion. In my own experience, sometimes that, that loss is almost more difficult when you see it coming. Because the bitterness of seeing that loss coming and not being able to do anything about it, sometimes that can drive our pain to become our passion. Our pain can also become our passion when we are jealous. 
says in the Bible that Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Let me tell you, in the world we live in with social media, it is easier than ever to keep a jealous eye on someone. Our pain can become our passion when we feel replaced. Saul was older. David was younger. David was supposed to take over what Saul was doing. Sometimes our pain can become our passion when we are feeling like we're being replaced. Our pain can become our passion when we're afraid. Saul became very afraid, and I think rightly so, because Saul knew that God had left him, but God was with David. And so whatever that fear may be from, when we are afraid, sometimes we can let the pain that comes with that fear become our passion. Our pain can become our passion when we are unloved. And I'm going to add to that, or the ones that we love, love someone or something else. For, for Saul, that looked like his people loving David. They loved David more than they loved Saul. And our pain can become our passion when we feel like a failure. Chapter 18 gives us a glimpse of Saul's feelings regarding David's success. A lot of times when our pain becomes our passion, when that is the lens through which we see the world, for some reason it distorts our view so much that someone else's success makes us feel like a failure, right? And so sometimes when that happens, our pain can become our passion. And so in the, in the Bible, Saul literally descends into madness. Like he literally starts to go crazy. And his jealousy causes him to hunt David relentlessly. And so for the sake of time, I'm going to give you a one-minute summary of 1 Samuel chapters uh, 19 through 28, almost the rest of the book, okay? So this is what happened, a very shortened and condensed version of the story. So what happens is Saul begins to, like I said, descend into madness. And he is so driven by jealousy that from that moment on, almost all of his actions are determined by the fact that he wants to kill David. And so um, he throws a spear at David. He misses. David jumps out of a window, runs away, and gets away. Then Saul's own son, Jonathan, who, remember, is best friends with David, um, kind of is trying to feel Saul out, see how serious he is about this whole killing David thing. And Saul is so overcome that he tries to kill his own son. He throws a sword, a spear at him. I think that was like his favorite thing to do was throw spears. But luckily he misses. And so now David knows, okay, this guy is really serious. He really wants to kill me. And so you have chapters and chapters of David fleeing and Saul pursuing him. And um, eventually Saul becomes so desperate. He's not just content to kill David. He starts to kill the people who like David. If they have helped him, if they favor him, he's just being merciless. And so um, Saul begins to be consumed by his hunt for David. And he continues to pursue him. And there's a really cool story in chapter 24. You should read it um, on your own. But there's a story where David spares Saul's life. They find themselves in a situation where David could have ended it all. He could have. I mean, Saul was in his hands, and he could have killed Saul and ended it. But instead, David just cuts off a piece of Saul's robe and um, chooses not to kill him. 
And then again, later, there's another time where David could have ended it all, could have killed Saul, um, his fleeing would be over, and instead, David spares Saul's life. And this is how distorted Saul's thinking becomes. Even though he momentarily is like in awe of David's mercy of him, even though David spared his life, not once, but twice, Saul is still in pursuit. Saul's main goal is still to kill David. And so he continues with this, and that is his pursuit for the rest of his life. Now, eventually, um, Saul goes to battle, and he is injured. And so as not to be taken advantage of or taken captive, um, it says that he falls on his spear and he dies. So essentially, he kills himself and he dies. Now, there's a couple things I want you to notice about Saul's um, story. The first thing is that Saul's pursuit is never finished. He never achieves what had driven him for so long. He never actually kills David. And the second thing is this. Saul's passion against David is consuming. It consumes everything about him. And it drives most of the stories about Saul in the Bible. The really sad thing is, is that this becomes what Saul is known for. It becomes his defining characteristic. It's just kind of like how for Inigo Montoya, his... His defining characteristic, the thing he is remembered for, is his pursuit of revenge. And so we see through the life of Saul that when your pain becomes your passion, you start to operate out of fear. And fear of very normal, very valid things. Things like fear of death, fear of suffering or hardship, fear of the unknown, and fear of injustice. I think this is what drives um, an ego in the movie, a fear that things will not be set right. You see, these are very valid fears, fears that many of us have, the fears that are not bad in and of themselves. But when our pain becomes our passion, these fears can make us operate in ways that aren't um, how we normally would act. We begin to operate out of this fear instead of out of faith. And this fear creates a thirst. So how many of you guys have ever been thirsty? Like, really thirsty. Not like, oh, a Dr. Pepper sounds good. Like, I'm thirsty and I need something to drink right now. See, the average person can live weeks without food, but only days without water. And when you are thirsty like this, it's hard to think about much else. It demands to be noticed, and it must be taken care of. It's consuming. But you see, the thirst for vengeance cannot be quenched. It's just going to return over and over again. And even if you take notice of it and you take care of it, it's not going to leave you feeling fulfilled. The thirst for vengeance cannot be quenched. It can only be satisfied. And it can only be satisfied through the living water, Jesus Christ. Now, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for revenge, vengeance. Those who hunger and thirst for things to be fair in life. No, I heard some of you say it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst in order to live in ways and act in ways that will set us in right relationship with God. That is to be our motivator. That is to be the lens through which we see the world. As Wesley said, life is pain. Pain will happen. The question is, what do we do with it? How do we let it motivate us? We see two very different examples between Saul and David. Saul is a warning, a warning that we need to have some humility and deal with our stuff so that Saul's story doesn't become our story. And then you have David, who in this story serves as an example, an example um, of patience and trust in God's timing. Trust that ultimately God will exalt the humble and oppose the proud. Now, David serves as an example of patience and trust in God's timing because multiple times he had an option in his own power to end it all, but chose not to. He demonstrated an attitude of trust, and he wrote about it in many psalms. So I'm going to read to you Psalm 52. And this is a psalm that David wrote um, about Saul as Saul is pursuing him. He says, Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? Why do you boast all day long, you who are disgraced in the eyes of God? Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor, you who practice deceit. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, O you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear, and they will laugh at him, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. You see, one of the greatest tests of character we have is when we find ourselves in a moment like David. When we find ourselves in a moment when our enemy is vulnerable. See, pain will happen. The question is, how do we let it motivate us? Perhaps for you, it's not something as drastic as the loss of a kingship or the murder of your father, but we all have those things that nod us. Perhaps it's broken promises, failed friendships, hostile environments, abuse. Probably don't have to tell you or read you a list of the things it could be because you probably already know. You know those things of pain in your life that have been tempting to kind of take over. And perhaps as a response, you maybe aren't, hopefully aren't, seeking revenge by killing someone. But maybe you're fighting those urges that are a little bit more subtle, a little more secretive, a little easier to hide. Maybe it's fighting the urge to lash back out of jealousy to speak ill of someone so that you sound better. Maybe it's the urge um, to manipulate a situation in your favor. Maybe it's the urge to abuse your power so that, you know, things will be fair, or maybe because they deserved it, right? The list goes on. Now, Mandy Patinkin is the man who played Inigo Montoya in the movie. 
And whenever they wrote the screenplay for The Princess Bride, they took it to Mandy Patinkin and they said, you can have any role you want. We just know we want you in our movie, so you can just choose. You can be whoever you want. And he said, I want to be Inigo Montoya. And there was a reason for that. You see, he read the screenplay, and he's so identified with Inigo's character. Um, You see, for Mandy Patinkin, he had lost his own father. About 15 years before they made the movie, his father had died from cancer. And so he so identified with Inigo's character and his pursuit for revenge and his desperation to want his father back. And so um, we're about to watch what I think is kind of the climax of the movie, a conclusion to a 20-year crusade. So for Patinkin, he said that the emotion in this scene is very real to him. He said, as they were shooting the scene, he thought to himself, if I can just catch the six-fingered man, maybe even for just a moment, I could have my dad back. So we're going to watch the scene. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Anything you want. 
So, um, one of the most climactic moments in the movie, and if you have little kids and you decide to watch this today, that was edited, so just, you know, warning. Um, but, so Mandy Patinkin, he chose that role because he's so identified with the character. He's so identified with having this consuming pain and the desperation of so desperately wanting his father back. And yet, despite Patinkin's own identification with his character, he said in an interview that his favorite line in the entire movie was Inigo Montoya's last line in the movie. And there's this scene at the very end. They're sitting on this window, and they're about to ride off um, to the happily ever after. And Inigo says this. He says, you know, it's very strange. I've been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. You see, I think Patinka knew um, what Montoya realizes in this moment, which is that nothing he could do would actually bring his father back. All the money, all the power in the world, everything the six-fingered man had to offer, anything he wanted, none of that would actually completely reduce the pain that he felt of losing his father. And so that brings up a good point. If we will have pain in this life, and we will, and maybe even pain caused by other people, or pain caused by things outside of our own control, what do we do with the rest of it? In Romans chapter 12, it says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, as Christians, the way we live should look so different than the way the world lives. And what it talks about in this verse is so opposite of what we want to do or so opposite of what the world tells us to do, but Jesus Christ calls us to something different. You see, when we try to repay evil with evil, we all know that it doesn't eliminate the evil that was done to us. It just spreads it to us. So it comes down to this. Do we have an attitude of trust? Do we truly, really, truly, honestly trust God to judge? Do we trust that in the hands of God, things will ultimately be set right? And this is hard because sometimes we may not see that in our own lifetime. But do we trust that it's going to be better in his hands than in our own? Do we trust God enough to do the impossible through us? so that we may treat even our enemies in righteous ways. You see, the people of God experience something better than revenge. We experience right standing with God, the blessing and justice of the Lord, and a peace that passes understanding. It's not easy. It's not even maybe natural to us, but it's possible through Christ. You see, through Christ, our pain does not have to become our passion. Instead, it can be repurposed for his passions. See, there's hope. 
there is hope. And not that that is supposed to minimize what maybe you've gone through or are going through. It doesn't have to minimize the pain that you feel. But it just, it takes it and it repurposes it for something better. And so Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4 say this, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we're just so thankful um, for the example you have set before us. We are so thankful that through the life of your Son, Jesus Christ, our lives can be different. That we can see the world through the lens of his love and forgiveness and righteousness. And so, God, we just um, say today that whatever we're holding in our hands, we give it to yours. And so, God, we love you so much. Um, May you move in mighty ways in our church and our community this week. We love you so much. Amen. You're dismissed.